The Art of the Sermon. When someone says sermon or tooth extraction involving removing all your teeth and replacing them with hot BBs, most of us feel a sense of apprehension. I'm not the sermon type, you might say. But in our country's history, and by our country, I mean the imaginary country of Fredonia, we have often uh, had sermons as a form of literature. People would read sermons in book form. And then later, they would listen to them on cassette. They would listen to cassette sermons. Sometimes they would do sermon mad libs. They'd have a famous sermon by someone say, this is by the right righteous Reverend Drummond. And we're leaving all the nouns out. And then you can put nasty things in there like that. But the sermon was a, a genre of literature. So people would sit down and read them. I guess they'd like to be admonished by moral types. But a lot of times they're life lessons. And it's just a long lecture about just how to feel more guilty, I suppose. I really don't know. I am giving a sermon right now. And you say, oh, don't. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, listen, if it starts to feel painful for you, run away. This isn't a church where they lock all the doors, they padlock you in, and they have people standing there, the ushers, making sure that you don't leave and you listen to every word. Sometimes they'll quiz you on the way out, say, what did the pastor say? I don't know, I was, I was asleep. But, uh, and, or some are more laid back, some, some religions. But I wouldn't mind a sermon if it involved some sort of recipe sometimes. A lot of times when I have been to houses of worship, this is still part of the sermon, if you were wondering, uh, it will involve something. They'll try to relate a lot of their antiquated theology to your modern experience. So they'll be like, you know, y'all like nachos, right? And then they'll try to work in original sin into that by saying, oh, original sin is like uh, salsa from New York. I don't really know. I'm not, a, I'm not clergy. But they do these inventive things to keep your attention because they really are just speaking to you for a very long time. I've been to some sermons that are just 15 minutes. So if you go to the um, Presbyterian church, I'm moving into Mark Twain territory here. Boy, he really socked it to the Unitarians, that Mark Twain. But I don't mind being, I don't mind being gentle. Um, but I remember going to a Presbyterian church and the sermon was you could he didn't go over. He'd be like 15 minutes exactly. It almost like he had an egg timer. I don't know what eggs take 15 minutes. Overcooked hard-boiled eggs, super hard-boiled eggs. I imagine if, if Rutt's Hut had hard-boiled eggs, they'd put one in there. We'd put this one in the fryer for an hour. So, oh, good. I did that as an experiment in elementary school. I remember that. The teacher it was in fifth grade, and we got into little science groups. And the teacher said, I want you to do one of the experiments in the books. And your, your group will do it. So we went through the book and we picked one where you take an egg and you cook it down to ash. And so we had, to, and it takes a little while and it smells acrid and horrible and wrecks the classroom. So we did that one. So we, we did that. And we brought our egg and we cooked it into oblivion. And then the, the teacher said, all right, what does that experience prove and we just i have no idea is what we all said and that was oh he was mad oh he was mad 
we were demoted. I was already in the lowest possible math and science group. And he says, I'm let, now I'm bringing you down to, to even lower. I said, there is nothing lower. He said, well, make, we're making up even lower groups. And then we're going to also, we're going to throw, now I'm going to throw rotten food at you even to motivate you. A lot of that, they would do that in uh, elementary school. How am I going to motivate this child? And they'd think, oh, either humiliation or threat of physical punishment. And that will get you, that'll get you learning a lot of times. I imagine if I was a, if I was a clergy, I might use bribes or something. I'd say, oh, follow our religion and you will be eligible for um, discounts, maybe. I don't know. If I was new to it, if someone said, Hardy, we want you to come on board with our organized religion, I'd say, all right. And they say, what is your first, what do you think? it's a good idea to get people to come back because a lot of organized religion are losing members and stuff. And I'd go, well, I mean, it feels like pretty obvious, but reward cards. I mean, every, almost every store I go to now has reward cards and, and people, a lot of people go like, Oh, I go to all, I go every um, Sabbath or whatever, whenever appointed time. And yet I just assume don't, people don't seem to notice, but if you're going in and the usher punched your reward card and then every 10 weeks or so, you get something free or a prize. Another thing that this is a little old-fashioned, and I don't know if y'all would go through this, your congregation would go through that, and this is stamps, um, uh, trading stamps. So what you would do is every time you would go, you would get a certain number of the stamps. So you get five. You go on a holiday, you get 10, something like that. Um, Tishbaav, you get, you get like get 15 so on the, if you get a smaller holiday like that or, or anything you get they go oh we thank you for coming out because it's not a popular one and then at the end of the at the you know you get enough you can go to the judaica shop or whatever or whatever kind of religious shop sometimes to have and you can get all sorts of things if you're jewish you can get a hanukkah or if uh the catholic you can get like a saint a saint that's been put on um, like a cypress stump and then glazed over, not glaze, <laughs> it is glaze. I don't know what they put on it. A polyurethane or something. I'm not, that's not my religion, but uh, something like that. And then you buy them and it'd be a little bit of a motivator. And I don't know if the sermon's enough. I don't mean lectured. I never, one thing I never do, and this is probably good, is I don't wag my finger I don't point to individuals and I go, you, you there going to hell like that. That's not productive. I, even if it's, I wonder, even if it's warranted, you wonder. I couldn't tell anyway. I couldn't tell. I'm so bad with faces. So even if I did remember, I wouldn't, I'd say, I don't know. I went, I've gone to a couple of religious services where people wear name tags, which I love. Because even if you go there all the time, you do forget. I remember when I was young, there was about a half dozen really old ladies, and I would not, I didn't know which was which, really. I would just go, hi, Mrs. Franklin, because they're all so similar looking. And if you really look careful, their hair was a different, different shades of blue and all. I don't, you know, they didn't put that in there back in the day. I don't know if old ladies still have that, but your hair would, white hair doesn't want to stay white. And I wonder why that is. I know there's, there's a lot of 
I'd go to Santa's. If you went to a Santa in the mall, it's not great. The Santa's beard would be a yellowish, yellowish color. And the, the sort of the lower quality of the mall, the more yellow Santa's beard. Because I know that because I went to one of the fancy ones and Santa's beard was white as snow and it was real. Well, a lot of the real ones, are you can tell the real ones are, are yellow. That, but what if your fake beard had been all yellow? That'd be no good. I had a clown nose I had to wear for a job that got started to change color and shape. But uh, that's one of, the, one of the signs. I don't know about sermons, though. I think that a lot of times people like something dramatic. I wouldn't mind banging the podium like Khrushchev. When Khrushchev would give a sermon, they weren't called that. But a lot of times he'd use his shoe. He'd say, I've, I, I'm not going to lie to you. I lost my, um, not mallet. What do you call it? To the, the thing you hit, order, order. And a little hammer, judge hammer. I know that's a judge hammer. They don't call them that. But his little gavel, gavel, gavel. He hit his gavel. And... Um, I don't know. I, I would. Uh, uh, I've, I've thought about doing this. Tell me if this is crazy. I have a little gavel, right? And I have a, instead of a watermelon, I have a grape. Because it's church. And then I hit the gavel, I hit the grape with the gavel instead of hitting a watermelon with a big mallet. And it's still fun. People still have fun and everything. And I will still let them put a sheet of plastic over themselves. I'll do that. I came in, I was given a sermon. And the first couple pews, I said, now we're going to put, I'm going to put a sheet of plastic over the first couple of pews. Um, and because I'm not going to tell you why. Uh, and they, once they had the plastic, I said, y'all look like Laura Palmer, I said to them. And uh, there wasn't a lot of laughs. But then uh, I brought that, I said, you're going, you might get splattered with something. You might get anointed, is what I said, with grape juice. And I took that grape out and I hit it with the gavel. And the thing didn't, it didn't burst. It just shot off and hit Ms. Leonard in the eye. Now, it stopped being, immediately stopped being funny. I did, I was at a, a, a bar mitzvah for a piece of candy, hit a person in the face and, 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 and hit a cyst and the profuse blood and everything. And a lot of times will people say, oh, that ruins, that ruined the event or that, oh, that could, but I don't think so. I think it brings balance. A lot of times, joy, and you know this from weddings where somebody, you know, somebody has to go to the hospital because of violence. You say, well, that's just a sort of balance to that. You know, I, how memorable are some of these uh, uh, weddings and church services where they all blend together, don't they? If nothing stands out. So every time I've thought about giving a, ser um, a sermon, it would be interrupted by a character. Somebody in costume maybe come down into the, I don't want to scare folks, you know, because, so, but somebody in a, not Elmo costume or something like that, because that could be a ne'er-do-well. But a, I don't know, somebody dressed as Father Christmas or Krampus or I don't some maybe something classical like that or a very large, I know. A Barcelona giant puppet. It was Spanish. There's Spanish giants that they march through the street. And they're terrifying, as all artificial people are. And 
I'll tell you why I think a lot of artificial people and puppets, I've worked with puppets my entire life. What, what kind of puppets? Not the kind that make you uncomfortable. I don't do the hand, the hand puppets. You go, oh, I'd like to be a better religious boy. And you go, well, little puppet man. Not that. Not like Sunday school puppets and all. And not marionettes. There's nothing wrong with marionettes. Just sometimes they're not appropriate. Um, there's a lovely lady in my old hometown. And every time there'd be a show or something, a band play outside for a festival, she'd go, oh, can I come up and do my puppets? And say, well, I mean, how am I going to say no? And she'd get up on stage with a marionette and was unskilled. So she just would like flop it around and everything. And anybody can buy a puppet. And she had bought it. It was a store-bought puppet. She was flopping around. And there's nothing wrong with that. But really, I have a philosophy about them because I make them in everything. And my philosophy is very strange. So when I make a puppet, I consider that I have made an empty vessel that looks like a being. I am potentially creating a golem. What is a golem? A golem is a creature from a, a Jewish myth, I think from the Middle Ages. And uh, the most famous story being in, in Prague, I believe. But it's about a rabbi who makes a man out of clay, so like a puppet or something, and then write something on his forehead, and I know what it is, and I'm not going to tell you because I don't want you to go do this because you might, I don't want you to make an animated, um, you know, person or something. And then uh, the golem does his bidding as a mindless creature, and then he erases it, and the golem goes back to being a lump of clay. Well, um, puppets are a bit like this, and you say, well, what? Puppets are an empty vessel. I believe there are souls and things that are clamoring, not sophisticated ones, not like souls of, of, of maybe a people or something, but other kinds of entities and things that are more basic. See this, are clamoring to get back into life or into life and kind of glom on to this vessel and become it. And um, sometimes a puppeteer, if the puppet talks, Sometimes they will share the space. And you've seen this with, with ventriloquist dummies. They seem to have their own, so, oh, that's, that's the, oh, the puppeteer and that's half of his personality. Is it? It is and it isn't. These things tend to kind of separate and because they've got their own physical space then. And so I'm very protective and cautious about puppets and I never use them frivolously because I don't know what's in them. Does that make any sense? No. Oh, come on. Doesn't it make it more fun to think there's something spooky going on? <laughs> it does. But I would bring, so I don't bring them into the, uh, the sermon necessarily. I might, I've seen people do that, say, I'm going to talk to a friend right now. And you're like, you're thinking, Pastor, don't, don't, don't. Hi. Hi, Pastor John. How are you? I'm doing good today, little puppet. What happened to you at school? I got teased for being my faith. Oh, did you? And what did you say to the children? I said, you're ignorant. I don't know what, I don't even know what theme. I'm really cautious about giving children, especially behavioral tips. I don't know. Especially when it comes to bullies. Here, if you, you counter bully, do this. Oh, gosh, I don't even know. 
my my I was always taught to, uh, and this is by the Three Stooges, is sort of distract and flee. Any situation, really. You just point and you go, what's that? And then you're gone. They turn around and you're gone. And that helps for a while. You say, oh, you can't do that your whole life. You have to face up to stuff. Do you, though? Because, I mean, they've yet to find me. Like, you can really just keep taking a powder. And I said, well, you can't run forever. Yeah, they can't either. So I'm sure at some point they're going to get, you know, uh, psychologically, emotionally uh, winded. And they'll be like, no, I know it's not even worth it. If it takes that much effort to, uh, you know, to make Hardy White feel bad, I'm just going to move on. There's easier targets. They say that about your house, too. They say all you want to do is have that burglar attack your neighbor. So, so just move them on to the next house. I think that's pretty ho- horrible, but I, I followed it, and I got a sign that says, please rob my neighbor and not me. Thank you. Might not be what they need. But to, to discourage it enough to move them on. I'd like to discourage the burglar enough that they don't burgle anymore. And I don't know how you could do that. Probably not by changing their heart. I'm really pretty wedded to the idea of confusing people into, into paralysis. You can stop people's action by baffling them. How do I know? Star Trek. Because I saw Captain Kirk do this over and over again, mainly to machines. He'd give them a question, right? He'd give them one of those old-timey riddles. That's a paradox. And for machines, paradoxes are like, are like poison. They send them into a recursive uh, rabbit hole where they just, it does not compute. They do like that, and their arms will flail. So I don't know, maybe you can do that to people. You say, have you thought about this? And then you give them some sort of like riddle logic. And then they start thinking about it. And steam comes out of their ears and they just sit there frozen for years, not bothering anyone. I wish that were, oh, I wish that were the case. It might be the case. I've stalled. So maybe I'm stalling you. You ever thought about that? You go, he just seems to be talking out of his rear end and stuff I don't know what he's speaking about and all over the place have you considered that I'm sort of distracting you while somebody takes something I don't know I could be like wait a minute no wait no 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 I'm not done because I see that also on like Rockford Files or something if you're gonna if you're pulling a scam I keep you at the front door Um, not literally I'll keep you at the front door of your consciousness while my um my accomplice goes around the back and wheels in um, a big vat of compassion, ready to use, pre-wrapped, all little individual portions. And so when you get done, you go back and you go, I have an endless supply of compassion for the rest of my life. And I just thought I was being distracted at the door. By that man in the Ed McMahon mask going, you may have already won this giant check. How am I going to cash it? Oh, I got one of those giant checks and I took it to the ATM. I thought I could do that after hours deposit and it wouldn't fit. And so I cut it all up into little pieces the size of regular checks and fed that in. And then it's gone. And they said, no, we can't even use it anymore. And I was like, ah. 
And I called the company and they said that giant check was the only thing. That was all. Didn't you open it up? There was cash inside. So I've made all those mistakes all my life. You got you to gotta take more care sometimes. It's easy to get distracted. And today's sermon is called, It's Easy to Get Distracted. I'm sorry, I wasn't paying attention. And it is. But I will also say this. It is sometimes wrong to focus on one thing too much. So distraction is good. It keeps you from maybe getting obsessed or something. I have over-focused on things and I've needed distraction. People say to you, what you need is some sort of distraction. Like what? And they go, let's go to the amusement park. Now, I don't like being distracted to the point where I have to be vigilant about my survival. Because that's kind of being distracted too. Say, oh, I better pay attention now because my life is at stake. I like something more relaxing. But there, who knows whether anything can really be, whether we can ever really relax. My friend, one of the reasons that you might be listening to this radio is maybe you're trying to kill some time. Or like me, you're doing a project, you're doing some crafts. So you put on the television, you go, I'm just going to listen to Matlock. Just the sound, as if it were a radio show. I've done that. The worst for me is Gilligan's Island. There seems to be a lot of visual stuff in that, because I'll just be listening on here. Laughter. And I'll think, I wonder what happened just then. But then the other shows, like if there's, there's two shows that are great, uh, because there's two old 60s shows that are radio shows on the TV. One is Adam 12, and the other is Dragnet. And both of them are written as radio shows because Jack Webb was a radio guy. So again, there's just one more thing. What's that? We're talking right now. Is that, is that right? Yes. Look at your hand. It's green. So there's still like, there's nothing you actually have to see that'll describe it all for you. And um, I like that. That's good for those of us who only listen to television. Because a lot of times I'm doing stuff with my eyes. I'll be making puppets or I call it needlepoint, but it's really, I'm, a lot of times it's art or crafting and I'll use my eyes with it. Sometimes, and even if I'm sculpting, a lot of times I'll make pottery with a ghost lover, but I'll still have my eyes closed and, uh, and listening to the, to the TV. The ghost lover put their hands around my hands on the pottery wheel and uh, I'll close my eyes and I'll hear, I'll hear Matlock going, Oh, just remember this. I've got this envelope here. Tell me this is yours. Like that. And... Um, it's just romantic, and that's the, that's the kind of things that excite me. I'm sharing them with you. Maybe that's what a sermon is. Maybe I'm not lecturing you. Maybe I'm just sharing a little bit of my life, a little slice of it, so you can see what about it is similar and what is different. I don't know whether you've ever gone looking for a house or a used house. <laughs> Call them that, the old houses, you know, not a brand new, not a new construction. I've never lived in one of those. I wonder what they're like. But an old-timey house, and a lot of times when you're shopping for these old houses or whatever they call it, you'll go in it and you get to walk through people's possessions. Like maybe an old lady has died and her house is for sale and you get to go through and it's, a, it's, a, it's just a tiny little local museum, old lady museum specific to that one individual. Those are the best. Is the unintentional museum of the individual life. I have, there's none better. And if there's enough stuff left around, 
It's just absolutely gorgeous. I'd like that as a sort of sleep no more, wander around immersive theater experience. No people. You walk into an empty house. It's called Old Lady's House. It'd be so easy to set up. And you're allowed, normally when you're going for a real estate situation, you don't go through their effects. But like this would be a performance. This would be an exhibit. So you'd be able to go through the drawers, read their letters and all that. Oh, God. It'd be great. It's the museum of the individual life. And just an old person's house like that. Well, anyway, when I've gone through them, the kind where you don't go through the drawers and look at their um, personal effects, you still get a wonderful idea of who they might be. And uh, there's that just that sharing. Doesn't need to be a lecture. They don't need to tell me anything. Because... If you show me your space, I can, I can better guess at your values than when you tell them to me. You could be lying. A lot of times when we tell people stuff, it's aspirational or it's um, out of fear. You say, I don't want them to think I'm deficient or I'm this, that, or the other thing. So the stories you tell about yourself, that might not be accurate. But you go into someone's space and you look around and it's frighteningly accurate. And then I want you to see that, so I don't want you to see my house. It's a reflection of my soul, and it's filthy. I go, oh, it can't be that bad. No, 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 no. I'm deeply, uh, you know, troubled, and so my house looks deeply troubled. And sometimes it is, <clears throat> and you can see. But don't be ashamed. Oh, my gosh. Don't ever be ashamed of, of any way as a human that you deal and struggle with this. And I don't mean anyway. Now, we, when we're talking in public and everything like that, we'll say something different. Because you don't want to be thought to coddle yourself or be self-indulgent or to be self all that kind of thing, you know. And so you might err on the side of being cruel to yourself. And I'd like you not to. You don't have to tell anybody you're not being cruel to say you can be good to yourself without telling without confessing it because it's not bad it isn't bad you know it isn't bad to care for yourself as you care for someone else and there is this notion that you must if you love somebody you've got to sacrifice for them more to yourself how about the same they tell you on this airplane when you're with a child they'll say put the oxygen mask on your own face first Otherwise, you will be of no use to the child. They'll just be a live child and a dead adult. You put the, I got the gas mask on his face, but he needs you. So put it on your face too. Then you can be of more help. That's why if you take care of yourself, you can do better. You can take care of others better. And maybe you need more taking care. Listen, I'm going to, now I'm going to give the most important sermon I have ever given. And there's no answer to what I'm going to say. It's just a problem. And it's an ongoing problem. And you'll start to notice it after I say it. And that is this. There is a need by human beings to figure out and to quantify how much others are suffering. Because you know you're suffering. But you think, well, are others suffering the same way? Or more or less? Are they getting away with something? Are they, am I feeling it more deeply? How deep is their pain? How about their physical pain? Are you being a ninny? Or are you being brave? See, they want to know what your pain is so they can evaluate it, so they can evaluate you, right? Everybody wants to know 
whether somebody's getting away with it. They want to be the judge of other humans. And to do that, they have to guess at their degree of suffering, how much pain they are in, physically, mentally, otherwise. And that you will see that everywhere. And so that person's got it good. Well, you don't know they got it bad. Yeah, they might got it bad, but they got it good. <laughs> right? I wish I had, if I had a car like that, it wouldn't matter so much that I was mean. I don't, I don't really know, but you know how that is, right? And so we're always trying to guess whether people are, 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 are suffering enough or whether they need to suffer a little more. And you see how dangerous that can be. And you kind of put yourself in charge of others. Try to guess by looking at them. Well, they look like they're all right. And I'll tell you, if somebody tells me and they're in pain, they're in pain. I don't have, listen, I don't have time to shrink down or something, go through her whole body or become them in some kind of mystical Dr. Strange spell. I don't have time. So I just believe them, right? I'm just going to go ahead and believe other people what they tell me about themselves. I hardly, hardly think most people are really getting away with anything. And even if they have some comfort or they find some compassion somewhere to begrudge any human being that, all these temporary short existences, and you're going to make somebody uh, uh, suffer a little bit because you feel like if they don't, it isn't fair. You know, I see dogs doing that on teats. You know, me, 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 me. Because there might be enough room for everyone, but they're still pushing and all that kind of thing. They all think they're the hungriest. And they, you know, who knows? That's why I said now that, now my answer to that is who knows? I don't know. I don't know who's getting away with anything. If somebody, if somebody comes up to me though, and they're in a really bad way, you know, and there's, I don't think they're just making it up necessarily. So getting away with something. He said he needed that money for food, but he really is going to use it to drink himself to death. I go, oh, well, boy, he getting away with something. No, not at all. Still suffering. So that's real. And I just do not, I don't believe that. There are plenty of people that are having, getting away with a lot of things, and they still don't affect your life a lot, you know, uh, because it kind of evens out. Man, everybody dies, and everybody suffers, some way, somehow. Uh, born, you suffer, born, you suffer, born, what you gonna do? You love when I sing, don't you? Singing brings joy to the heart, mainly of the person singing. Sometimes the, it does the opposite to the other person's heart. Music can be wonderful, it can also, it can bring joy and it can elevate, but to, to, to some, it can also mildly annoy or, the, or aesthetically bother in some way. So one song that could be so meaningful to you and so joyous could be mildly irritating to someone else, and therefore that somehow is supposed to balance. I don't know that it does. But um, th there is that idea in music. I don't understand what kind of music. Here's the thing about music, too. I have, I've been, I've played it. And um, i played the type of music. When I play music, it's not, it's not, um, what do you call it? 
absolutely demonstrably great. Like it's not obviously, you know, some people play and you go, oh, that's, that's Yo-Yo Ma or something playing. The, that's uh, Simone Dinnerstein or something playing the piano. No one's, you know, no one's going to be better than that. You know, she's an accomplished person. And then you say La Hardy's playing, you go, can't decide whether that's good or not, really. Well, because sometimes it's context. See, I've always played the type of music where you play for a party and people and everything like that. And that, it really is just about the moment. It is about the, you're making something for the moment. It's not supposed to be universally transcendent. Sometimes it just works for that group. We all agree to be joyful. And so this is the way it works, actually, for the Hardy White uh, Miracle Nutrition Hour. It won't work universally on everyone. It will work if you want it to. And you have, uh, you understand the moment that we are in and the others that you are with. And then you don't need as much because you are going to do some of the work too. Right? When you go to a, a, a wonderful big concert by, by the famous, you don't have to do as much work. Sometimes, um, sometimes you know, Brahms is doing all the work and, and, and the artist playing it. And you just have to let it soak over you. Then there's other kinds of entertainment where you got to participate or it just doesn't work. You know? So it's like, oh, and I, you got to go, oh, like that, or it's not going to work. Well, I have aimed that mic out and go, let me hear you say something. And now I don't hear you saying it. Oh, I want to go home. So that's happened too, you know. But then if the people are with you, uh, it's transcendent. You go to another, another level. So this sermon isn't always about the content but the context. So that's why it, it seems to me kind of weird if you were just reading like it's back in the day, somebody in the 19th century uh, delivers a sermon, writes it down, you're reading it in book form. Just how moving can that be? You know, because the, the being there and being with others, because there's, uh, there's some theologies where the actual number of people matters because it's acknowledged that there's a different thing going on with a different number of souls. And you feel it. It's a wonderful thing, especially in grief. Oh, in grief. In grief, you can feel it real well. If you have more than 10 people with you in grief, there surrounding you, you feel not all better but you, you feel buoyed, you feel uh, embraced, you feel part of something, you don't feel the entire burden of, of the anguish all on you. It feels more spread out. It feels like you're all, I'm, I'm grieving in a group now. I feel like I, the burden's not on me, all the sadness. We're, all to, we're together in the sadness. And we're together, in, and anytime we're together in a struggle, it helps. The cure helps. Maybe there is no cure for everything. Maybe there is no solution for anything. Maybe there is only working, getting towards a thing. Maybe there's no arriving. Maybe all these philosophies are correct. 
maybe a perpetual state of change and moving towards and and that's the way I, I and if that's the case that's the case if we are on a boat a tiny boat in a stream and we're headed for a waterfall that waterfall could be very far away now it's inevitable we're going to go over the end and we shall all perish but when? See, that's the deal. We got a lot of time. It's days. Maybe it's years. Well, if it's years, what are we going to do in the meantime? Well, how can you do anything living in the shadow of the waterfall? Well, listen, I'll tell you what. Since the waterfall's for everybody, since everybody perishes, let's just go ahead and remove it from the equation because it's meaningless. It's meaningless. It's if we were doing math, death would be like, oh, now add zero. Well, that... <laughs> If you add zero, if everybody's adding zero, then just let's leave it out. You could add 20. If everybody adds it, we don't need it. So, so you know, in a way, we don't have to think about that waterfall. And then you say, well, what if we get too frivolous? You say, well, the waterfall's coming for you. Don't waste all your time. <laughs> it is sort of a balance. I don't know. You know, memento mori, remember you die, means something different whether you think you got an afterlife or not. You know, because it could mean like, remember, you got that afterlife coming up, pace yourself. Or it could mean like, hey, get, get it all in before the absolute end of things. So, you know, what's the point of remembering if there's two different conflicting things? I try to remember as much as possible, but I also forget and I don't mind forgetting. And forgetting has been the basis of, of most of my life, I think. Um... Some things are so painful, I thought I'd never forget them, and man, they're fading. I don't know if that's good or bad. I can't remember much of a thing. I try to renew the good feeling, though. I try to put a new good feeling on things. So if I recover a memory, it's not just neutral, you know? Like there's some people that now I've um, been gone so long, I have a hard time conjuring uh, memories of them uh, completely, but I can still feel joy associated with them. I put that on every time the memory comes up. So I'll think of it and I'll think of them in a joyful context, even if I can't grab completely everything that's still there, you know? And I know I'll probably be down to just the feelings eventually of things. I don't know how bad that is. I saw, you know, when these artists, a lot of them get to the, uh, if they live long enough and they get elderly, like, uh, like, um, um, well, Monet, you know, their, their, their eyesight can fade and, um, um, I'm thinking of somebody else, but I, but the, as they get, and Picasso did this too, sometimes their art gets very simple, you know, just be shapes. And I think that's Omatisse. I was thinking of, he's that too, he's big colored, you know, little leaves or something, cutting things out of, out of construction paper eventually. And it comes down to the basics. And I don't mind that. I don't mind being at the basics. and get all complicated describing the good stuff. Oh, my friend, let's cut out some uh, colored paper together. I don't mind doing that. Uh, I don't mind doing the simple things with you. Like eating. Eating is simple. And I like doing that. I like sharing a meal with you. So what, what if we don't eat the same things? We can figure something out. I bet there's something we eat, some some small vegetable or, or something like that. Wouldn't it be like some 
what uh, might not be cilantro. You know, it might not be something that people have opinions about. But we, there's a, a wonderful uh, Bible verse. What is it? Proverbs or something. And I first heard uh, Jerry Clower, the um, comedian, say it. And he quoted the verse in the King James style. So it sounds very poetic and Shakespearean. Um, but on a comedy record, I remember him saying, better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stall-fed ox and hatred therewith. And that's how he said it in his, his uh, great uh, Mississippi accent. And I, I love that verse because uh, it does mean that. Uh, better is a dinner of herbs. Something simple is better with love than something complex and with all the... That's why, you know, you don't want to be a celebrity. Oh, you don't want to go to those fancy dinners? No. What you want to be doing is you want to be doing what happened to my friend uh, uh, Charles. He's driving across the country alone, and he met a family. He met somebody, I think maybe it was somebody working at the hotel. And, and the fellow says, I'm going to my mom's for dinner. And... My friend thought it was some restaurant called My Mom's, but it wasn't. It was the man's mother's house. And he took Charles over to his, um, I'm sorry, I'm telling your store, Charles. You're welcome to tell it. You want to come on the show and tell it in more detail. But they just had dinner with this family. And they're just being themselves. And I think at some point, uh, my friend Charles just started to, to weep. And they're going, what the heck is wrong with you? And he's just like I'm. I'm overwhelmed. I just it's uh the just it's just love out of nowhere for me, and I don't feel like I deserve it. Uh, if you've ever had one of those powerful experiences, where you feel maybe a little vulnerable, maybe you're alone, and you are shown inexplicable, un inexplicable, unexplainable. That was going to be me, boy. I'm Mr. Words. What a vocabulary I have but you are shown that kind of love and compassion and you feel like I'm, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. Uh, where's this been? Uh, can it be turned on and off like that? Cause I could use it. And, and the thing is it, uh, it can't, but when you have those eye opening moments, when you see that or when you feel that, Oh, you're getting close. You're getting close. Oh, may your heart, may your heart right now be light. I hope your heart's light, like a balloon, like a. There's two types, you know, like a regular air balloon with lung air, or um, pump air, or helium balloon, or a lot of times I like I'll put hydrogen in balloons at parties and go get it away from the candle like that. Um, but it adds an element of, of uh, excitement to the party. Oh, I hope this is a party for you. It's just a fella speaking. <laughs> it's not just that. I hope that my words have my blood all over them. What do I mean by that? I hope that they're coming from my experience, that I'm holding nothing back. You know, I, I don't want to hold anything back. I'm not saving it for later. I've never thought that about speaking to anybody or being on the radio or anything. It never felt cumulative for me. I'm not a, not my career. I'm not a, I don't know what I am. I'm not a anything. I'm a you. Like I'm surviving. 
I'm not a, you know, I don't have a profession. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not a professional speaker. I'm not a professional actor. I've done little things here and there, but no, probably no more than you have maybe. But, I, I, you know, the one thing I want to do, and it isn't even, they don't I describe it anywhere, is I want to c- communicate authentically in the moment with other human beings to no real end except to try to connect as a way of, of mitigating suffering. That's it. You know, because uh, that's absolutely it. It's just that simple. I don't, can't do anything more complicated because I don't understand what, where we are and what we're doing and what's going on. All I understand is pain, and I, stand, I understand pleasure a little bit. And so, um, you know, that, that's about it. I got, a, I got as much awareness as your dog. And so I'm glad that I'm not a professor or I'm not a, a fresh maker or whatever they call them on the um, trendsetter or whatever you, it is. What do they call them? Are they inf- influencer. <laughs> that's a th- influencer. I swear to God that's what my friend called a sledgehammer. Like when we do any kind of demo, like is um, I've hung out with a lot of construction people and a lot of renovation, and uh, you know we had the influencer and their persuader. The persuader was the small uh, sledge, and then the big one. So I, I always think that, and I don't want to hit anybody with a sledgehammer. That's not the kind of I'm a more of a persuader. I don't tap you with the well. It's still a big. It still looked like that. Uh, the one you hit on the TV where they would ching, cling, and I just hit the microphone with my fist. It felt good. But uh, there was some TV show at the end, they would strike like an anvil with a hammer, clink, and they would stamp a Roman numeral into a horse. I don't remember. I'm vague memories. TV used to be very different. So I'm not uh, here to uh, entertain, am I? I suppose I am. Oh, my gosh, I'll tell you a joke. So this is one of those long ones, and it might be a bit of a shaggy dog uh, joke. Why? Because I haven't thought of it yet, and it might not come out in joke form. So I just start telling things. So what, what you do, and I feel a lot of people write novels like that. I like A lot of time I'll look on writer Twitter, and people go, do I have to have an idea or to start my novel? And they go, just go for it. No, they don't. I don't know. They have a lot. Of, people got lots of rules. But... um. And you will hear advice from someone who's never done any of those things yet, too. I am also, let me tell you what to do, because I'm also thinking about writing a first novel. Um, but what I do is I say, a horse walks into a, I was going to say bar, but that doesn't make any sense, barn. A horse walks into a barn. The bartender says, um, welcome. Have you ever been... Um, to one of these establishments before. And uh horse says, no. And I said, well, let me just walk you through some of our specials. Um, we do have hay. We will be serving alcoholic oats, which are not for everybody. Uh, I will be your server. There is a special... There might be, I don't know. I see I've never I've never waited tables, so I can't do the whole 
the whole pattern like that. I wouldn't mind coming around people's tables to, um, I don't know, sell a single rose. Or we went to a restaurant. My grandparents used to take me to a restaurant called the Captain's Table, which is very because the captain is very important. And so his table is the best table. But the captain's table had many, many tables in it, and they all looked about the same. My grandfather would give the man like a $20 bill for one of the ones that wasn't near the kitchen. But at the captain's table, they had some entertainment. And the, and the, the entertainment was uh, a skinny little old man pushing around a celesta. Is that what they're called? Those chimey little pianos? And... They sound like it's like a little bell. I think it's called a celesta. And uh, he'd come around and reel that around, you know, and he'd play um, somewhere, my love, ding, 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 there will be ding, ding, dong, or something like that. That was my grandparents' favorite song. Um, which I always thought strange, you know, love theme from Dr. Shivago. It's like, did y'all see it? It must just be the melody you like, because I don't know the song itself. And then they changed it. Right before my grandfather died, they kind of changed their their romantic favorite song. And, and this one really is, I don't think they listened to it, to Tony Orlando and Dawn's Tie Yellow Ribbon. Oh, tie a yellow ribbon round the old oak tree. It's been three long years because he's been in prison. Now, I'm pretty sure my grandfather was never in prison. He was frequently in, in um, a rehabilitation hospital for alcoholism. And dang, man, I loved him so much. He battled that like crazy for years. Just awful. My grandfather was tortured by it. Just, he had such a drinking problem. He was so good. A uh, sweet man, and he would have to check himself into a hospital for weeks at a time, every few years. And by the time I got older, I think it tapered off, but it had taken a boy, taken a toll on his, on his health and everything. I mean, he really tried. He'd just been, you know, he'd been drinking so hard from such a young age, and and hadn't had any real, real terrible consequences, you know. So you can keep it up for a long time, but. Um, and it was humiliating for him, you know, he was embarrassed and uh, every, just, you know, it can be uh, terrible. Now, you don't always know people are going on about that. That's struggles. People thought he had it great on the outside. He was very, very uh, charming, happy-go-lucky, um, very friendly man, um, very warm, very funny. And But they most people did not know that he had this, this secret thing. Um, and he, he was sober the last years of his life, so the last, you know, good, last good chunk, maybe. Almost 10, I think. Um, but, gosh, the secret struggles. That's just one of many, many stories. And I've seen them in my family. And so um, I just gentle myself up when I come, you know, I'm not, I don't feel like a... Uh, I don't feel like a weak person, you know, because I don't think, and, and you won't too if you confront things. You know, that doesn't make you weak to see things or feel things. You know, it makes you kind of a, a warrior, not in, the, not in the hurting part, but like a, a bravery, right? There's nothing fearless about it. It's fear. It's, it's being, going full bore into fear. Never stops being that. 
but you can be brave. And, and brave is knowing that, like, um, that I am get, I'm getting to, to love through this. You know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna add to the hurt. And that is wonderful, unburdens my heart like crazy. Because there's nothing worse um, than adding to someone's pain, putting some pain on top of it, you know, when you don't know it. And so, my friends, that's why I try to you say, well, maybe maybe you're erring a little bit uh, hardy on the side of trying to please. I'm not trying to please everybody. I'm just, uh, um, uh, what am I doing? Because I'm not, right? I'm obviously not pleasing everybody. Am I hurting everyone? I don't know. I might be. You know, people get awfully annoyed about the smallest things. Just the sound of my voice or the way I'm saying it could drive someone to just, oh, I hate that guy. Really? I hate Hardy White. I hear his voice and it just drives me crazy. Well, don't listen. I can't not listen. I am consumed with hate. I have to actively hate him. So I guess that's the possibility. But then I feel like, gosh, I don't know if I, uh, I might, if that person knew every crevice of my soul, I could say, well, maybe they have a motivation, but I'm pretty sure that a lot of it, they're just making it up. Uh, because, uh, you know, probably most people would hate you that much, probably don't know you enough uh, to. That's just, that's pretty much reserved for family, that kind of deep disdain. Uh, but I want to, I, I think loving you for no reason would be better. So you don't know me. When people said that to me, you don't know me, you can't love me, you, can't, you don't know me. I go, oh, believe me, it helps. You know, like I said, it's aspirational maybe. Let's get to that. Uh, maybe you don't want to be loved or you think something's wrong with you or, or you, you're, you know, you're afraid, but I'm not, you know, I'm, what I'm offering is very uh, casual and it's really closer to uh, neutral anti-pain than it is any kind of active love. I just, I won't work against you. I hereby solemnly swear that I will not be your enemy at the very least. I will not. I will not add to your misery. I will not make a joke at your expense. I don't have to. Sometimes I won't even make a joke at my expense because I don't want somebody else who's like me to feel that they can that that's bad. You see what I'm saying? So if I start beating up on myself, I have no hair. I've been bald since about my 30s. Um, my hair fell out about mid-30s, and it was gone, gone, long gone. Uh, let's see, what else? Um, I got no chin. I don't have much of a profile. Uh, belly. I'm got a big belly. Didn't always do now, right? So I'm all, I limp. I walk with a limp by 50 cent, except mine's toe arthritis. Uh, so all those things. But if I was to put them down and say, you know, oh, I'm ugly because of this and everything like that. Well, if you look like me, I'd be talking about you too. So, but no. I'm not going to do that. I don't feel that way about you. So I'm not going to say those things about me. People forget that when they're self-deprecating. That you might have a twin. Or you might have somebody who identifies with you. So if you're self-deprecating, you're, you're not just self-deprecating. You're putting them down too. So oh, I hate this about me. I hate that. And somebody's thinking, I look exactly like you. If you hate you, you hate me. So I'm saying like this, I'm fine. Man, I'm fine. 
Look at me. I'm alive. And all sorts of shortcomings. Yes, yes, blah, blah, blah. Don't we all? I got a lot of things that are great, too. A lot of things that I didn't, I didn't think were so great. Like somehow I got to be, listen, I used to be, have all this anxiety and social anxiety, and I still do, and I was afraid of people, and it was really, it was terrible. I couldn't hardly go out in public or be with anybody or anything. And now it's still there, right? It's still there. But now I'll go out and I say things that are like ridiculous. Like I'll say to people like, I'm so glad that we can be together. We're alive together here today. And they look at me like crazy. I'm some kind of crazy religious nut. But it isn't that. It's just that I finally like, I finally can speak my heart. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid to tell people you know, hey, maybe it doesn't always look it because I'm weird or awkward or anything, but, oh, y'all mean the world to me. I'm going to say it constantly. I don't care how silly I look. And I'm going to uh, I wanna keep telling you, my, my listeners out there, uh, um, I care about you. Some of you I know. Uh, some of you I don't know. But you're the mere fact that you are listening to me and that you might care about me that's all that qualifies you. And you know that's enough. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Especially if you had to open your heart and be patient and take some time. Because this is a sermon. It is. It's a long discourse, a long talk. So that you can sit and think about your relationships to other human beings. So you can take a minute and reflect and let your heart grow. Sit in a space that's loving, that's safe, where we are right now. And let your heart expand like a big balloon. Like a big Macy's balloon, it's going to float. I prefer the ones from the 1930s that are, that are terrifying. I like balloons that look like crazy uh, cartoons, old 20s cartoons or something. Ah, uh, look at all sorts of strange, big-nosed demons. Um, those are my kind of favorite things. I like to be uh, terrified. I like to understand that uh, it's all mixed up together, the scary and the joyful and the, the sorrow, the darkness and the light, all big, swirly, wonderful mess. I love being in it with you. Thank you so much for being with me and to listening to this. It's a recorded sermon in the style of the 19th century Delta. Put it on a cassette and give it out to your friends. Say, listen, this has really affected my life. And, I, uh, and they go, oh, Lord. Yeah, I'm into the, just kid them and say it's like a cult. I'm into this new cult. And uh, give them one of my tapes. And then see, let's see what happens. And that's asking a lot, the whole tape thing. Don't worry about the tape. But if you do get the tape, then you can hear me on the flip side of that MGMT single from about seven years ago or something. So that might be fun. Oh, my friends. I love, oh, I'm, hello to them too, by the way. Wonderful people, MGMT. Been a long time. That was weird. Almost like it didn't happen. Anyway, thank you so much, my friends. This is, uh, Hardy White, Miracle Nutrition with Hardy White, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, 91.9 in Rockland County and online, WFMU.org. Did I say New York City too? In New York City? Uh, uh, and I will see you again next week.